Hello, Hub listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, our regular Friday Roundtable podcast. Each and every Friday, I'm joined by Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. Sean, how are you? I hear that you've got an episode of biological warfare <laughs> unfolding there in the Spear household. Uh, do you need a hazmat suit, sir? Yeah, exactly. If anything ought to be going before the International... Uh, the, the International Judicial Council, it ought to be my two children for the biological warfare that they've been waging against um, my, my wife and me. Yeah, I've been there, buddy. Uh, it's good for your immune system. This it, It's actually true. You know, your immune system imprint, imprints all these viruses. And that's why people who are elderly uh, often, you know, don't get as sick as the rest of us because they've had all these viruses over the course of their life. So th this is actually good for you, Sean. It may not feel like it at the moment, <laughs> but it's good for you. Well, once Do these kids are uh, you know, in the school, I'll be superhuman at this rate. <laughs> well, let's get down to some serious business because there's two big topics I want to talk with you about on the show this week. Uh, number one, tomorrow is the 100 days since Hamas's horrific attacks on southern Israel. What have we learned over the last 100 days about Canada? We're going to leave speculation to international affairs to experts in that field, but we think we can and should say something about what's happened in Canada over the last 100 days in response to the Hamas attacks and Israel's invasion of Gaza. And then the back half of the show, some new polling numbers out. Um, shocking in the extent to which uh, the liberal decline that we thought might have been halted uh, in terms of public opinion in December is back and it is back big. What does this mean? How did the prime minister's vacation, uh, his controversial vacation play into current public perceptions of the government? And more importantly, what does it say about the prime minister and this government going forward? Uh, over the next period of time. So that for you on the back half of the show, stick around for what should be a, a terrific discussion. But Sean, let's start with the first 100 days here in Canada since the Hamas terrorist attacks. If I was to challenge you to say, what's the one big thing we've learned about Canada in this period of time? How would you answer? Wow, that is a big question. Um, I, I think it has to be that... Um, that our social cohesion and shared set of commitments around some basic precepts is much weaker than I understood, you know, that as our population has transformed over the past several years through the immigration process, there are now critical masses of people who, you know, who've clearly come out uh, against Israel and at different points, arguably in favor of Hamas. Um, it's not, a majority of the population, I think at times, Rudyard, um, the visuals of these protests and acts of intimidation and so on can cause us to overstate the size of this constituency. The, you know, polling pretty consistently shows that a majority of Canadians um, are supportive of a government policy that, that stands behind Israel, at least at, up to this point. Um, but you can't look away from what we've seen in the city of Toronto, in the city of Montreal, on, on our university campuses and so on. And so um, as I reflect on 100 days uh, uh, since the attacks, you know, it seems to me um, I'm left with the reflection um, that we have some serious work to do when it comes to 
um, finding a, a way to do pluralism well that I think we've uh, taken for granted um, that we do pluralism well. And I, I think that there's been some chinks in that armor um, on, on display over the past hundred days. H how about you? What's your big picture reaction? Uh, to build on that, I, I think it's just a feeling that we all have that we're much more divided than we realized. Um, I mean, I'm old enough to remember some of the constitutional upheavals of the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, it was kind of my political coming of age. And there was certainly a sense then of the country being divided, in fact, some kind of existential divisions. But boy, are the divisions ever different today. It's just, uh, they're different in quantity and quality. And I think we're all really grappling with that. I think all of us felt that there was this hollowing out of the Canadian identity over the last decade or so. We had turned on our history. We had, uh, you know, put on the hair shirt of um, the kind of colonial uh, mantra of oppressed and oppressor. We had done very little to tell people who came to this country seeking opportunity and actually seeking the very values that maybe were absent in their countries of origin, what Canada was about. We reveled in, in this idea, as the Prime Minister characterized it, of Canada as a post-national country, a country that, in a sense, its defining hallmark was its absence of a shared identity. And I, I think you're right, Sean. I think in some ways there's a greater anxiety I hear amongst people now about the sense of division then at times during the constitutional crises and the tensions between French and English Canada in the 80s and 90s, because the sense this time is that the divisions are more intractable in a way, that there isn't shared history, there are few shared institutions, there is not uh, much in the way of a common identity to fall back on albeit that identity between French and English Canada was, you know, contested and conflictual at times and all those things. But this time it's there, there's a sense that there's such a gulf between many of us and our fellow citizens that we care about and we love deeply as fellow Canadians, but they have beliefs and ideas that just seem so completely antithetical to what we believe. That seems new to me, Sean. Yeah, you said that your coming of age was the constitutional rounds in the 80s and 90s. I'm slightly younger than you. And so by the time I was in school, what did we learn? We learned the, uh, the tension between the notion of a melting pot and a cultural mosaic, of course. And there was a sense that there was something um, enlightened about Canadian multiculturalism that we permitted people to you know, bring with them um, their values and their culture and you know old commitments and all the rest. And if you if you take a if you step back a bit, I mean, one of the major stories of the past twelve months, whether it's the uh, the reaction to the Israel Hamas war or whether it's the foreign interference story that we saw in twenty twenty three, including of course the extraordinary case of uh, accusation that Indian government assassinated. A Canadian resident for his political views as it relates to the state of India, um, that you know we I think we need to revisit the extent to which, or at least think about how we can 
manage the extent to which people are bringing all of their old prejudices and their old politics with them. I mean, Canada in some ways has become a sort of platform uh, for uh, newcomers to essentially adjudicate the politics that they ostensibly left. And, um, you know, these are obviously difficult questions. I was proud this week we published an article at The Hub by Aaron Woodruff, who didn't just make the common argument about housing and immigration, but actually was prepared dispassionately, thoughtfully, but to go that step further and say, we actually have some kind of small C cultural issues that we need to confront as well. These are difficult questions, um, but if we're going to make this bet on immigration, and I think we should, um, you know, we're going to have to be um, prepared to have those types of conversations. And I, I think after 100 days since the, the Hamas's attacks against Israel, I'm kind of more convinced of that. Let's talk about some of the other big, I think, developments and how we think about the country in the last 100 days. I think in our politics, we've seen, again, some of the division and disunity that we sense individually in the public square kind of bleeding over into a political discourse that, at least in terms of the government at times, has created a real sense of incoherence. So, Sean, what's happening here? How, like, is it as simple as just the public discourse and its fracturing and divisions are now mapping into the political, which in turn is mapping into the policy? That's a bit worrying. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The, the divisions that we talked about at the outset I think are shot right through the Liberal Party of Canada in a way that they're not the other major parties, uh, for better or for worse. Um, you know, it reflects in a way the kind of broad coalition that the Liberal Party has been able to historically centrist, pragmatic party that it has a coalition of of all types of voters, including a critical mass of Muslims and um, and at least historically a critical mass of Jews. And I think what we've seen over the past hundred days is the Prime Minister struggle um, to kind of manage the internal politics of those tensions. And, you know, this week we had an, an op-ed in the National Post from uh, Conservative MPs, Melissa Lansman and Michael Chong, essentially calling the prime minister out for this, that their accusation, which strikes me as is certainly plausible, is that he is trying to kind of have his cake and eat it too. He, on one hand, is communicating to certain constituencies um, that he supports Israel, and on the other hand, he's uh, c communicating to other constituencies um, that he's in favor of, um, you know, what's the various kind of euphemisms that he's used over the past several weeks about a, uh, about a ceasefire and so on. That is a domestic politics play. That is not the play of a G7 country um, that has a responsibility to Canadians and to the international community uh, to communicate where it stands on the biggest international questions of the day. Yeah, I will say in defense of the government, you know, kudos to them to lining up with, you know, Britain, France, um, and uh, the United States to push back against the Houthis and their interruption of global shipping. Traffic through the Suez Canal of the last two weeks is down 40%. If you're worried about inflation, as we all are, this is inflationary, a world of geopolitical risk and uh, a world where bad actors like the Houthis and Hamas and Hezbollah get a free ride translates at the end of the day to an inflationary risk to all of us. So everything is interconnected. And I think the government did the right thing. Interestingly, you know, Italy didn't. Italy refused to join 
uh, the strikes on the Houthis. And who knows, maybe a different Canadian government might have been more Italian in this moment than uh, a member, a proud member of the Anglosphere and its longstanding commitment to international trade, the free navigation of our seas, all the key things that are at the heart, the basis of the prosperity that globalization has brought. Let me end, Sean, this 100 days by talking about universities, because to me, that is the other big surprise. I, if you'd said to me on October 7th, as horrific and shocked as we all were about those events, that 100 days later, universities would be facing a major reckoning about the curriculum and uh, ideas uh, that they are prognosticating, and in some cases, preaching, I would have said to you, what? Get out of town. But here we are, 100 days later, with, a, I think, a real debate that's not going away about universities and what exactly they're doing in Canada, the United States. Yeah, I, I agree that that's uh, one of the major developments over the past 100 days, that um, that these events have exposed... Uh, I, I think to the the broader public, some of the fringe ideas that have operated sort of below the radar on university campuses for uh, a long time, and I, I think that it, the result is a, a, a loss of legitimacy on the part of Canadian universities and a potential financial and political crisis before them. You know, we're speaking. I mentioned on January twelfth this morning, the Globe and Mail. We have reports that Queen's University is on the precipice of pretty major cutbacks. It's hardly the, the the last university in the country that will find itself in financial dire straits. And I think there it will be difficult for politicians to go to Canadians and say, in a world of scarcity, we think we ought to be dedicating incremental resources to universities as opposed to healthcare or infrastructure or whatever. I mean, I think it would be quite logical for ordinary taxpayers to say, no, I, I don't think uh, scarce dollars ought to be going to these places that clearly have come to kind of intellectually isolate themselves um, from the interests and values of the broader society. Um, I hope university presidents and provosts and others are listening because I think they find themselves at a, a kind of moment of reckoning, as you say, and it's not self-evident to me um, that they have the resolve or the wherewithal to pull themselves out of it. Yeah, to me, it's a classic like social license problem that they enjoyed a really generous and broad social license to do what they do. And unfortunately, various, you know, political and ideological forces and factions within the university use that license to retool the university into parts of it, not all of it, but parts of it into, again, prosthetizers for ideas that were really outside of the mainstream and are difficult to justify in the context, as you say, of an era of increasingly scarce uh, public funding and resources. May I just say something uh, on that very subject before we, we move to the, the next topic uh, for today's roundtable? Um, tomorrow morning, uh, Hub subscribers and members will receive um, the, the weekly newsletter. Um, and we've made um, the editorial decision to publish for the first time uh, in our near three years of publication, um, a anonymous uh, essay from a senior university administrator who approached us in response to some of the issues that we've been discussing over the past several weeks on the roundtable and some of the essays and articles that we published at the Hub. Uh, this administrator wanted to tell the story of their experience on a major university campus in Canada and what they've seen um, uh, not just in the past 100 days, but really 
uh, over the past several years. Uh, it's a call for a recommitment to a kind of small L liberal conception of post-secondary education. And, and we're proud to run it. I would just say um, for listeners who want a kind of window into our editorial process, it wasn't an easy decision. We debated it internally for some time, but we were satisfied that this person, um, you know, the story that they were telling us was um, rooted in facts and could be substantiated. Um, and that the risk to this person, if he or she put their name on the on the essay, uh, could face serious professional and social consequences. So stay tuned for that. I think it's a pretty powerful first person um, glimpse into what's going on on university campuses uh, in the past 100 days and, and, and even longer than that. So look, we're, we're at 100 days, 101 as of Monday. Um, I think we just all of us want to kind of think about this conflict and how it's going to play out because it is going to last for months longer. We are still in the early innings of this. We've seen a significant possible escalation of the crisis in the last 24 hours. The prospect of a re regional war now hovers over uh, Gaza, the Middle East, the Red Sea, Iran, Hezbollah, Lebanon. Um, this is big stuff. The, these, this is uh, a geopolitical moment, and uh, Canada is going to be buffeted by this, and boy, do we need leadership. Let's take a quick break. Back on the other side with a discussion of the Prime Minister's plunging poll numbers. What's happening here? Is this related, tied up in uh, his amazing Caribbean vacation? And I want to get into this vacation a bit. We've resisted talking about it, but I think there's something here. There's an interesting key to understanding where and how this government may choose to go in the months to come as, you know, I think election drumbeats start to hum uh, as the, the months of 2024 uh, proceed. So back with that conversation right after this break. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday compilation of our best writing from the previous week again free for you right now at www.thehub.ca welcome back to the hub roundtable i'm Rudyard griffiths the executive director of the hub i'm joined by sean spear our editor at large so sean a new opinion poll uh, out this week showing that whatever momentum, as small as it was, but it was there in December that the Prime Minister might have enjoyed with Canadians reversing uh, a precipitous fall in the polls for him and his party over uh, the summer and fall, seems to have reversed itself. Give us some uh, top line numbers and then let's jump in to try and explain uh, what is happening here and more importantly, the why. Yeah, what a difference a month makes, uh, Roger. Uh, on uh, December 15th, we recorded an episode of the Roundtable that we called, Is There a Glimpse of Life in the Liberals? Question mark. Uh, well, uh, approximately 30 days later, the uh, unequivocal answer is no. Uh, this week, Abacus uh, released a, a major national poll, uh, which shows um, that the Conservatives have gained four points since the middle of December. They now 
have a 17-point lead uh, uh, vis-a-vis the Liberals, uh, who find themselves at 24% nationally. I think you'd have to go back a long time, Roger, to find uh, the, the Liberals down below a quarter of, of the popular support. Uh, what's really striking, though, is when you go under the hood, the numbers get worse. Um, the conservatives lead in every region of the country except Quebec. They, leave among, they, they lead amongst every age group, in some cases by almost double. They're, they now have uh, commanding leads among men and female voters, something that we've taken up, incidentally, at the Hub today. Um, these numbers are grim, and, uh, and they, they suggest that any momentum that the liberals had coming out of the end of 2023 have been stalled, which, of course, prompts the question, what gives? What happened? You know, maybe it's that Canadians spent time over the holidays talking amongst themselves about the state of the economy uh, and affordability challenges and so on, and that that led to a kind of codification of uh, support for the Conservatives. Um, but I think you have, uh, if not a, a different explanation, at least a, a kind of accompanying one. What's What's your take? Yeah, so I think there's a macro and a micro here. I think the macro is a feeling of brokenness in the country that has existed for a while now. So it's broken public services, it's uh, broken uh, infrastructure. Uh, the city of Toronto was just selected as, in a study to have the worst traffic of any city in North America and third worst in the world. Um, there's a sense of an affordability crisis, again, a brokenness in living standards. I think all of this is combining to create, you know, a set of deep anxiety on the part of a lot of people that I talk to that somehow the country has spun out of control, that there's some kind of secular decline that's accelerating and just feels tangible to all of us. That's not going to go away. And I think it does not bode well for the prime minister. And against that backdrop, Sean, I guess what you know, I resisted last week talking about the Prime Minister's, you know, uh, 9000 US, $12,000 Canadian night, complimentary vacation courtesy of the billionaire Green family uh, in Jamaica, because I kind of thought, well, that's, you know, that's the clickbait stuff we don't do at the Hub. But on the basis of these polling numbers, I guess what just, what I have a hard struggle wrapping my head around is, why does the prime minister put himself in these positions? Why does he do these things that are so demonstrably against his own political interests? The conservatives have a devastating add up, I'm sure one of many on this vacation. A lot of people that I know who are not really hardcore politics types are talking to me about the vacation. Um, this resonated because it's against that backdrop of brokenness that you have a prime minister living a billionaire lifestyle on a billionaire's tab. So what explains this, Sean? Why, if he was fighting so hard with his staff and his caucus and all these people bleeding buckets of blood for him to try to get his poll numbers back up, why would you go and do this? I have an idea, but I want to hear your, your theory first. Well, geez, now I want to hear yours. Um, I, my best guess is that he's gotten away with it before you know that he has he was elected in 2015 um uh with a ton of goodwill and political capital and in the intervening uh you know seven or eight years he, he's actually been subjected to a lot of 
um, kind of ethical issues. Nothing, no showstoppers, um, but, you know, the types of things that for most politicians kind of chip away at their credibility and public trust. And for some reason, um, maybe it's because the conservatives have waged a kind of a weak opposition. Maybe it's because, you know, people still remember him as the, you know, the young person who kind of moved the country when he spoke at his father's funeral. For whatever reason, he's just had seemingly more. But Sean, um, you, you would acknowledge that the backdrop, though, is so different now than 2016. The mood in the country is so black. People are feeling so dyspeptic about their own kind of personal prospects, about where the country's at, about you know, the size and quality of public service, infrastructure, healthcare, uh, passport renewals. I mean, the list goes on and on. So I get in the past why he might have done this, but to do it now, to do it when, again, they were just throwing everything but the kitchen sink to try to yes. get a heartbeat in the polls over the fall. And then to then have to kind of walk back what the actual terms of the vacation was and then... Yes. It's revealed it's like an $85,000 gift of the Green family to him. So I mean, beyond all the ethics stuff, and I, I don't know enough to figure out how this conforms with the ethics laws. It really surprises me. I think we need different ethics laws if this does, you know, pass the Conrad von Finkelstein test, which it seems to have done. But I want to go to the politics of it again, Sean, like things are different this time why well no i want but but it's you what's your you're you're holding us with bated breath here what's what's your well, uh, hypothesis I, I, well i think there's there's two things i'm I, and i've been wrong about this seriously but it, it it's either suicide by cop right like like he he wants to get out he doesn't want to be doing what he's doing his marriage has fallen apart his caucus is uh you know complaining his political advisors, all of them are telling him from what I hear to leave. So often we're all like this. We, we often do irrational things that are not in our interest because they actually express our deeper desires. So I think a suicide by cop theory is, is plausible. The problem with it is it, is it conforms to my, <laughs> my own desires that we have an election and a change of leadership in the country. So I have to, I have to discount it a bit. So the only other thesis is, is not that he thinks he can get away with it, or he doesn't um, think the normal rules apply to him. It's that he has a deep and abiding uh, lust for luxury, that there's something strange here about his personality where if he is afforded the opportunity to access luxury and uh, opulence and uh, a kind of Vanity Fair uh, Hollywood lifestyle of the white sand beaches of, of Jamaica with the cooks and the chefs and the butlers, there's something in him that makes it very hard for him to say no to that. It's, 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 an, it's kind of like a certain very peculiar kink and addiction. Uh, so look, I'm psychoanalyzing and I'm not a psychoanalyst, but, <laughs> but it's just, it just strikes me that there must be some compulsions inside of him 
that lead to this behavior, which is just so demonstrably irrational against the backdrop of these devastating polls and against the backdrop of just such a bleak public mood that is the opposite of the Jamaican villa, you know, at $12,000 Canadian a night, um, you know, white sands and infinity pools uh, for as far as you can see. I mean, it, to, to, to me, yeah, it's it's something like, it's something that, you would expect um, a ruler in in like a less than completely like democratic and accountable first world country to do it. It has a feel of like the Gulf or some claptrap, you know, South American or Latin American country. Sorry, Amal Adar Guzman, our producer, <laughs> who is has proud lineage to Nicaragua, which I will not uh, anyway. Um, anyway uh disparage but i just simply say that it just seems uncare it's not canadian i guess is what i'm saying sean yeah maybe the because I, similarly uh, i'm i'm not sure i can do psychoanalysis but let me kind of draw on my experience in ottawa um including at the end of the harper government where um the government was never down in the polls like the current one finds itself but it, it clearly had an uphill fight and one of the um, kind of canaries in the coal mine uh, for the outcome of the 2015 election was the number of incumbent MPs who announced that they wouldn't be standing for re-election in 2015. I think we're at about 10 right now and counting of Liberal MPs who said they won't um, they won't run for re-election whenever we have an election. I, I think we'll probably see um, that number climb in the coming weeks and months. And and um, and one can kind of understand that, right? Like. One of the hardest jobs of being an MP, it's it's one thing to defend um, policy choices that your government uh, makes, including ones that um, for which you might have kind of strong ideological commitments, but that you know they're they're not universally supported in the public. That's that's one thing. Uh, it's another thing when you're on the front lines uh, on the weekends at anniversaries and birthday parties and small business roundtables and so on, and you're personally forced to defend. Um, the extravagant holidays of the prime minister. There's very few things, Rudyard, that can kind of break the bond uh, between a leader and his or her um, caucus members than a sense that they're on the on the front lines, not because the government is doing bold, ambitious things, um, but because the prime minister or the party leader has um, essentially decided that he's going to, you know, he's going to get his entitlements um, and the kind of interests of the government and the party um, are going to be subordinated. And, and you know, I think we'll have parliament return later this month. I wouldn't be surprised to see we hear, at least anonymously, more and more liberal MPs starting to kind of distance themselves uh, from the prime minister and, and, and his government. Yeah. No, it's a great insight. And again, it just, it just that's the irrationality of it. Um, and hence why I go to psychoanalysis, because you're right, those caucus members just must feel just punched in the gut of having to walk around your riding and explain this to to voters who are who aren't taking holiday vacations anywhere you know and obviously aren't vacationing you know with billionaire friends in you know this is the controversial part to me the ethics part that i don't get not in their private home that might be one thing to be invited to mr green's private home if he's listening um i am available for march break but this was a rented property, like a property that was normally rented out to other 
I assume, you know, New York hedge fund uh, doofuses who were down there happily spending uh, nine grand US a night to stay here. So there's a side of this that just seems unseemly and kind of like a grift. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it just shocks me. And uh, I guess the only good thing is that karma exists in the world, right? <laughs> and when you, you think you're getting something for free, eh, nothing usually ever is free. There's a price uh, at the end of the day for everything. Um, well, Sean, a great roundtable as always. Uh, a little bit of uh, frivolity in the back half there, but you indulged me. Um, <laughs> it's something that uh, I've just mulling over, so I feel like I've exercised some of my uh, evil spirits around <laughs> a vacation envy. That's probably where, if I want to psychoanalyze <laughs> myself, that I, uh, I was in like the Eastern townships over the holidays. Uh, there wasn't much sun, there wasn't much snow. And there ain't a lot of white sand within a whole bunch of thousands of kilometers uh, of Magog, Quebec. But I digress. Thanks for coming on the program, everybody. Thanks for listening. We will do this all again next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email, and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support, and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.